All right, as we continue on, we're uh, moving forward in our study of, of Acts as we survey the first 30 years of the church's history and our overall study of this survey of church history. And of course, last week we spent a little bit of time in Acts chapter 17 and, and really sort of broke down uh, that, that encounter that the Apostle Paul had there in Athens with the uh, philosophers and the intelligentsia of that day and time. And, uh, you know, Paul's approach uh, to bringing the gospel to a completely pagan and sophisticated, cultured, highly, highly intellectual, uh, yet completely lost culture. And um, we saw how his faithfulness to the truth uh, in bringing the one true God as creator of all things and his work of sustaining, giving life and sustaining life and and the fact that he has confirmed his purpose and plan in the gospel through Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead and spoke of judgment that everyone will face. He brought the gospel to that, that community of complete lost pagans who would otherwise be oriented toward mocking and even saying things like, what does this babbler wish to say? And, and yet his faithfulness and his persistence and even his compassion in the midst of all that was evident in that encounter and was serves as a great uh, testimony to us as we consider how we represent Christ and bring the gospel uh, to those in our culture with clarity, with conviction, with direct uh, reliance upon and reference to the truth of God's word, but also with a level of compassion and engagement that strikes uh, people that we are sincere and we are sincere in what we believe and we are sincerely uh, concerned about uh, what they um, that they know Christ, and so that great testimony for us in Acts chapter seventeen is where we left off, and we're going to move forward today. We're going to do something pretty different, or a little bit different than what we've done in previous weeks. Um, but before we begin, we're going to we're going to sort of wrap up sort of the information that we have to, that that uh, concludes the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. You see that in uh, Acts chapter eighteen, verses one to twenty two. We're going to kind of survey some of that. And we're also going to find ourselves uh, moving forward into the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And, and really, the third missionary journey uh, is very similar to the first in the, in the sense of the geography that was traveled and the places that were visited. And the purpose of it was, again, to go back to these same churches and strengthen them and, and check on the leadership and, and to protect against false teaching and to continue to evangelize uh, the lost in those communities. Um, But what's unique about the third missionary journey is that the Apostle Paul ends up staying in Ephesus for a lengthy period of time and establishes a great bond of relationship and fellowship with the believers there, but in particular, uh, the leaders and the elders in that that location, in that church. And you see uh, this long address as he's departing uh, to head back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, he, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but he calls for them to come meet him in Miletus so that he can address them and basically offer his farewell. And it's a pretty well-known and well-studied and well-taught-on address of the Apostle Paul. It's one of the longer addresses that you find in Acts. Anytime you see these long addresses, you kind of take note, just like we did in Acts chapter 17. But this is a very endearing, a very challenging, and I believe a very timely uh, address that the Apostle Paul makes to the Ephesian elders as he calls them over to Miletus after Paul had to sort of flee the scene there in Ephesus um, before his final farewell and his journey to Jerusalem, at which he knows that he will never probably see them face to face again. So we're going to kind of 
trek our way through this in somewhat of a survey fashion, but I, I want to start in, in sort of building a, a, a groundwork for our thinking as we look at these, these events um, in the history of the church, uh, particularly as they relate to the Apostle Paul and his travels and the founding of these churches and the strengthening of these churches early on. I want to start by asking you a few questions. I want to get our thinking going around uh, this particular matter of the church. And I want to start with a very broad kind of question. So um, just there's a lot of ways that this could be answered, and it's intentional to start this broad. But when you think, when you think of the New Testament church in 2018, what characteristics... And I'm saying the New Testament church in its broadest way of seeing it. What kind of characteristics, whether good or bad, positive or negative, however you want to characterize what kind of characteristics come to mind? How would you describe or characterize the, the current status, the current tone and disposition of this thing called New Testament Christianity in modern time in 2018? Apostate? Why, why apostate? Um, I think many churches have forsaken the scriptures and are not teaching them anymore. Okay. Anybody else have any? Yes. Um, like activities and how can we get people in and very modern, almost like rock music. Okay. Like, you know. I, what's wrong with rock music? <laughs> I mean, well, I... I have I have a guitar solo I was going to do to conclude my time here, and you're 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 making me think I need to change my plans. Well, you've got to get that organ. <laughs> That's right. You told me about the organ. Okay. So yes. Yeah, so um, uh, maybe more. Maybe maybe a way to to characterize that. Tell me if I'm I'm getting it. What you're thinking here. Um, maybe more of an emphasis on um, style and appealing to people's. Um, I don't know, worldly interests as opposed to otherwise? I think, yeah. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, backing off that, I was thinking uh, Sunday morning has become, uh, instead of a, a time for the, the equipping of the saints, it's become an evangelism opportunity. So, you know, which I think, you know, it, instead of the saints going out and evangelizing, they're just inviting people to this event, this concert, this get-together on Sunday morning where they can then be evangelized. Okay. Yeah. Changing of the source of truth, changing from the Bible as a source of truth to whatever we feel is right. Okay. Going off of that, over-accepting, like accepting accepting gays into the church. Okay. Okay, so a lack of lack of commitment to convictions that flow out of scripture. Okay, so maybe the appeal to emotionalism and, and experiential kinds of things. I'd say a disdain for doctrine. Okay. I'm thinking the church, church here. Hmm? Worldwide, I think of the underground church in Iran, people getting in a car, riding around. That's their church service. Yeah. Everything is. Yeah, a lot, a lot of faithful commitment in the midst of extreme danger is also characteristic of the church. It's interesting when you start thinking about the, the comparison of something like that to how we would naturally and immediately characterize sort of 
you know, 2018, the American, you know, kind of, I don't know, consumer-driven kind of mentality of, of just about everything. Uh, and the church is sort of another facet of that almost. It's almost like the church, in many respects, is just a reflection of the culture more and more, right? It's just, it's just it more and more reflects what is characteristic of the culture. And so we have, I think, become a very consumer-driven type of culture and, uh, you know, very sort of uh, attached to the conveniences and the technology and all the things that sort of make life from day to day on this planet uh, um, enjoyable, uh, endurable. I mean, you know, we, we, and it's some, some of it's, I mean, some of it is normal and natural. I mean, I, I mean, all I know is that if our air conditioner goes out, I really do want to get it fixed, right? I mean, I, I mean, I'm not like sitting there going, well, praise the Lord, this is a good opportunity for us to really learn how to relate to the believers years ago that didn't have air. I mean, I don't think like that at all. Like I'm thinking, call the dude, get him here, man, this is hot. So there's, a, there's an element of this where you've got to expect, you know, that, that we, we, are, we are enculturated in many ways. But I think that what has happened in some respects is that, that um, sort of being uh, products of our environment, products of our culture, uh, the way, one, some of the ways that it has uh, affected the New Testament church is in the areas like you're talking about in terms of doctrinal conviction. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, is it sinful to have air conditioners, air conditioners in your home or in your church? That's not the point. The point is, are you allowing your attachment to convenience, to the social dynamics of the culture that seem to be dominant, to the things that sort of appeal to us emotionally um, and, and bring a level of satisfaction? So, for example, the entertainment uh, culture that we occupy. I mean, you just start thinking about this. I had this thought um, I had this thought yesterday. We went to see a movie. We went to see the uh, Infinity movie, in, uh, Avengers, Infinity Wars, right? So um, I don't know if you know much about the Marvel movies. Has anybody ever seen a Marvel movie? I'm sure you have, right? Um, are we, can we go? Are we, is that sinful? Am I, can I admit that? I went yes. to that movie. You guys, okay. A little bit, a little bit, but not during their worship service. Um, but but what I, well, I had this thought. This is like this is actually during the first. I guess this is probably the first. I don't know hour and a half of previews that I had to sit through before the movie started. Um, but you know you had all these these previews, these movies, and I, I think it was during a preview of um, one of the the new Harry Potter movies. I can't remember. It's the it's not the old Harry Potter. I don't even know. It's the new um, the beast the beastly Fantastic Beasts series or whatever it is, where you had these. I just remember this. You had this scene where these uh, it looked like kids or just people, and they were they were swimming or moving through these giant bubbles that encircled them. And it struck me at that moment. I'm thinking that is like I mean the special effects that are now at play in movies is utterly astounding. And all you have to do to get a sense of that is just go back in time. All you only have to go back like ten years or so, and you're thinking. It was so it was so bad by comparison, right? I mean, it's so realistic now, and so we're drawn into these this world of technology and experience, and you can't help but go, 
that is so cool. And it had this appeal that just sort of draws you in. Um, and so I think that in, in, in terms of how that affects the church or how that affects believers who make up the church in, in a very dangerous way, is that we begin to have more desire for the things that seem harmless enough and innocuous enough, like going to an entertaining movie. I mean, why, why is it bad to use the technology at hand to have great special effects? It's not, okay? We, but we begin to get inoculated to some of the things that could bring about compromise. We, we don't even see them or sense them anymore. I think more significant than that is that we become less and less serious. We become less and less sober about what the church really is and about what being a part of this body of believers called the church is really about. We, have, we, we, we can become kind of subtly lulled to sleep and forget that we are at absolute war. We're not even aware of it anymore. If the air conditioner is working and the special effects are cool, all is well. Now, I'm being a little bit, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's, I think, how you can just kind of get gradually over time lulled to sleep. And I think if anything is vivid, is what you see in Paul's travels, but in particular this section that we're going to move through a little bit today, somewhat in a summary and survey fashion, you just get reminded of the fact that this is what the church is all about. This is what true gospel witness is going to look like if we're faithful to it from the scriptures. This is what leadership in the church has to be about, has to be mindful of, needs to be ready to face. This is it. And to the extent that we're not aware of this, we are completely losing the war. Completely. And the fact of the matter is, is that because we have become such a a culture that is oriented toward convenience and entertainment, and we can create all these tremendous um, movies and these tremendous devices that make life so easy and fast and all that kind of thing, we, we can fail to realize that we have a complete and utter dependence upon the living Christ to be effective in the church. We, we, we kind of lose sight of that. And we begin to think that to the extent that people are responding to our cleverness expressed in how many, other, how many myriad of ways it might be expressed, you know, if I'm artistic, then maybe it's my, my genius at creating art. If, it, if I'm... You know, if I have a skill in technology, maybe it's my ability to, you know, do media and use technology, whatever it might be. It, 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 our, our, expression, our expressions of our own cleverness and how people respond to that in, in, in mass becomes the measure of faithfulness. Not, are we just being faithful to the scripture and to the mission of the gospel? So I think that this particular section of scripture at least as I was reading through it and thinking about these things, it really struck home to me uh, that, that we, are, we are living in perilous, perilous times, and I think we don't even know it most of the time. 
I don't think we are really, really aware of it most of the time. But it's perilous, perilous times that we're living in. And the church is called to be a beacon of light and hope and an object of massive derision, both simultaneously. But nothing in between that's just sort of innocuous and not making an impact. What you see in this section that we're going to look at is you see gospel impact that is massive in nature. But it's not always pleasant. But it's definitely significant and substantive. So you have the Apostle Paul wrapping up in Athens, and then you turn the corner in Acts chapter 18, and you see that he finds himself in Corinth. In fact, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 18, we'll kind of get started reading the first few verses, and I'll probably just sort of dip in and out and and summarize uh, just to kind of work our way through just the general narrative and the events that are taking place. But it says there in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, stop right there for a second. The interesting dynamic that's going on here, and this is that we, we've seen this throughout the, the study of Acts, but, but this, is, this is this mounting and growing dynamic that, that is taking place and that the church is having to sort of operate within. You see that reference there when the Apostle Paul encounters Aquila and Priscilla, that these are two people that had come, that he had encountered them in Corinth, and they had come from Italy, from Rome. And you have this historical reference that Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. And this is something that took place, that this was actually an edict. In fact, uh, the, the Roman historian Suetonius, and then there's others as well, but Suetonius said this about this particular instance. He said, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which is a reference to Christ, he, the emperor, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. You have several uh, contemporary historians from that day and time that reference this expulsion from Rome. And so here Luke is recording that, lo and behold, you've got two people that Paul encounters, Aquila and Priscilla, who were expelled, in fact, from Rome. Now this tells you several different things. It tells you that, first of all, there are believers already in Rome, that the gospel has already spread effectively into Rome, so much so that a lot of the things that we see happening in Paul's travels, both in his first and his second missionary journey, and will happen again during his third missionary journey, is that you have, what's, you have this tension that builds up and it largely begins, or almost, it almost I don't want to say every case because there are exceptions, but in almost every case it begins because the Jews are incited by Paul's message of the gospel of Christ and salvation of Christ and really as Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah that has been promised by the prophets and that you should know about from the Old Testament. He goes into these synagogues and he reasons with them from the scriptures explaining to them that Jesus is the Christ that there is no other way of salvation but by this name, Jesus Christ. There is no name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it. And so he ultimately, some believe, and then, but many are incited. And so what that often resulted in, in these uh, Roman provinces, is the Jewish people stirring up dissension in the community and having to engage or trying to engage the Roman 
leaders and rulers, the proconsuls and so forth, to take legal action, Roman Empire legal action, against Paul and Silas and Timothy and whoever his traveling companions might be at that time. It's very similar to what Christ experienced, right? I mean, you have this whole thing going back and forth during Passion Week and Christ's you know, trials where he's going from the Sanhedrin to standing before Pilate to being sent back, and it's this back and forth kind of thing. Well, this is, this is now spreading sort of throughout the empire where you have the Jews inciting the Romans and trying to get the Romans to take legal action against the, the apostles and the, and, the apostle, and the apostles' companions. And that's creating a sort of a civic stir, sort of a civil problem. Um, and, you know, there's the, the riots and that kind of thing. I mean, there, there, it, becomes, it becomes more of a, a keeping the peace kind of matter that, that the Romans uh, begin to have to experience. And so you, you have this, this expulsion, you know, Claudius. So Claudius, just so you know, Claudius was seeking to make a name for himself just prior to this time and, and, and after this time. Um, I'm not going to go into all the history, but the way that he found himself as the emperor was was somewhat suspect, and he was seeking to make a name for himself, to establish himself, and so he began to take uh, Roman conquest into Great Britain. It was Claudius that basically took the Roman Empire and conquest into uh, the United Kingdom, Great Britain at that time. So I, I can just imagine that he that these uprisings and this this you know, him hearing about these these this dissension between this basically what. Christianity was, in, in their minds, was just another Jewish sect. It was just another sect of Judaism, and it's just this internal religious squabble of these people that we allow to you know, occupy our province that we've conquered in some time past. Um, he's just like, just get out, enough. Now, there was a, a, an edict that happened before that time, probably about eight or ten years before that time, where the Jews were continuing to cause trouble, and he basically said, I don't want you to have any more meetings. So that was a precursor to this full-on expulsion. Just get out of town. I don't want you in Rome. Now, the interesting thing is that that, that wasn't like a, a, an empire-wide kind of edict. It was just that they were expelled out of Rome. So it's almost as though the dissension, it's like Rome was going to be protected from all of this, this Jewish nonsense. Just get it out of here. And here you have the Apostle Paul encountering Aquila and Priscilla, who had come front to Corinth as a result of them being expelled in that environment. So you have the tension that's being created by the Jews. You have the Roman leadership, the Roman Empire leadership, getting frustrated and being motivated by civil restraint and civil peace, uh, who, would, who would, at times, if it got out of hand, would sort of quell it in some way, either by force, by some type of imprisonment, or even by a, you know, an, an edict like this by the emperor out of Rome, just expulsion of the problem, just get the people who are causing the problem out of Rome. Okay? Then you have the reverse of that, where you have certain proconsuls, and you see this with Gallio uh, in this particular section as we move forward, where the, the law that protected Roman citizens, like the Apostle Paul, they had, there had to be an a, a, a appropriate legal process that had to go through. You couldn't just seize a Roman citizen and try them and convict them without a, a fair trial and without you know, proper representation. Without, without adherence to Roman law. And we see, we've seen a, the Apostle Paul appeal to that at, at past times. When they find out he's a Roman citizen, they're like, they all, everybody backs off, and they say, we have to go through a process. If it was just a Jew, 
They'll let the Jewish people beat them. They, I mean, they'll let them get away with all kinds of things. That's your problem. But when they find out Paul's a Roman citizen, then they back up, and it becomes now a Roman civil matter. Well, so you have this tension that continues to build. And ultimately, what we know it's going to culminate in is when Nero becomes emperor, it, it, you start seeing persecution take place in, in a more aggressive kind of way. It's no longer just a civil matter. They become objects of derision and even of, of actual physical persecution and to- torture. But this is the environment that the Apostle Paul continues to operate in when he meets up with Priscilla and Aquila there in Corinth. Another thing to keep in mind is that, in other words, so you have opposition that's coming at you from different angles for totally different reasons. But it's opposition nonetheless. Then you have the environment of, for example, a a place like Corinth. Corinth was known as a very licentious, immoral city. A very big city, uh, estimates of maybe over 200,000 um, uh, citizens or residents in that city. It was a very important city, but it was also known as being uh, very licentious. In fact, uh, uh, a, a, a very, um, um, I don't know, unmentionable kind of uh, sexual act is called to Corinthianize someone. I mean, they, they got their own sort of brand of moral perversion attached to them um, as a result of their, their uh, immorality that was really widespread. And so there again, there, that's the environment that the Apostle Paul is witnessing in and bringing the gospel into. You've got political and civil uh, uh, pressure from the Roman government that is being instigated or brought into play by the rejection of the Jewish people of the gospel and then you've got the, the moral outrage. We saw this with the Apostle Paul when he was in Athens where he was compelled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in Athens. So he finds himself in an environment where he is, he is highly aware of, of all the opposition that's before him. He's aware of the moral opposition. He's aware of the political opposition. He's aware of the religious opposition from his own countrymen and his own people. In other words, he is mindful of the fact that he is in the middle of a, a mission that is fraught with danger. It's fraught with uh, the, the press, pressure of rejection. There's constantly the threat of, of imprisonment. Um, he's surrounded by immorality, and yet he's having to engage that with the gospel. So this kind of ministry and this kind of message and this kind of awareness, you start looking at this, And it's easy for us to detach ourselves from this kind of reality. But if we just think about this for a second, this is the world that we're living in. In in very many respects. I mean, you think about what kinds of of judicial um, actions that have taken place against Christian faith, where it's affected businesses, for example. It's affected schools. Okay? Okay. Uh, you think about the, the, um, the degradation of the culture in the area of morality. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but statistics now say that 9 out of 10 boys, by the time that they're 12 years old, will have accessed online pornography. 7 out of 10 girls by the time that they're 12 years old. So guys, we're in a licentious culture. It may not be that there are temples to uh, gods of sensuality and goddesses of sensuality on every corner, But you don't have to have that when you've got it in the palm of your hand. 
The temples are in people's pockets. So if you want to talk about access and opportunity and pervasive spread, welcome to 2018. That's That's right. You can do it all in secret and keep it keep it in the dark. But but take it a step further. Now there now there are are um, what what used to be things that have to be kept in the dark. They're no longer that way anymore. Now they're applauded and celebrated as as the new kind of morality. Right. So so even things that used to um, compel people to if they're going to engage in these kinds of activities to try to do it in secret. That's 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 even turning inside out. Okay. So, again, I, I bring all this up to say we need to recognize this is the world that we are supposed to be bringing the gospel into right now. This is not something that's remote and distant back in the first century. This is current. This is now. This is what struck me as I kind of thought through some of the implications of all this. So he meets up with them. He, he, he immediately establishes an affinity with them because they're also tent makers, he begins to uh, obviously go into the, the synagogue as was his practice, share the gospel every Sabbath, it says in verse 4. And of course, the, he, re, he, he encounters the same kind of opposition. In verse 6, he was opposed and they reviled him. And he said, it's fine, now I'm taking my message to the Gentiles. He begins to minister there in a, a house of a, a, a worshiper of God, a, a Greek worshiper of God. Um, interesting statement that I want to make a point of. As we think about the environment that the Apostle Paul is ministering in, and we equate it to our environment now, and what, what it takes for us to have the right mindset, the right sensibilities, the right soberness of mind, the right courage of heart to be able to be effective for the gospel in this day and time. Look at verse 9. So imagine, imagine what the Apostle Paul experiences from day to day. I mean, this, this is a man, okay? This is a man who gets tired, who gets sick, who gets fatigued, who gets discouraged in facing all this opposition. The Apostle Paul was not a, a superhuman. He was a man, uniquely called, uniquely gifted, but still a man. So he had to face and deal with discouragement. And so he has this moment where the risen Christ himself encourages him. And listen to what is said there in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now think about that for a second. Think about what gospel witness is all about. It's about taking the message of the gospel to the world with the absolute certainty and confidence that Christ has his people in that city. He has his people in that city. In spite of everything that you're seeing, in spite of every ounce of discouragement that you're experiencing, in spite of every sense of like, this is just a futile exercise that you might come to, there is this encouragement that is by sovereign decree, God has his people. Go. Take the gospel. With courage, do not fear. It's an amazing statement by Christ of direct encouragement to Paul, but it's also an amazing 
statement of theological reality about the sovereignty of God and saving men's souls. We are heralds and messengers who are called to be faithful and courageous and completely trusting God and the power of His Spirit in this endeavor. And insofar as we are doing that, we can do that effectively and with clarity. But the second we begin to start equating the effectiveness, or, or I should say, the, the um, I don't know, the need for us to persevere in our mission that's based upon our own practical evaluation of the landscape where we are, of whether or not it's effective, should we continue? Or should we change our tactics? Should we alter our message so that people might, you know, we might sound a little more appealing to them? Do you see how this happens, right? People are resistant to the gospel, so what do we do? We adopt a different, basically a different way to try to lure them into some kind of understanding of the gospel. That is not how people come to faith in Christ. That is not doctrinally or theologically or biblically true or sound. So we end up accommodating because we do get discouraged and we do face resistance and we do face ridicule and we do face scorn. And to the ears of many, the message of the gospel is absolute and utter foolishness. So what does that make you? A fool. Irrational. Not committed to science. Lost in this silly faith stuff. And harmful to people's freedoms and rights to express themselves any way they so choose. Why are you bringing this message that would compel me not to express my sexuality the way I believe I should express it? Who are you to do that? Right? Which really, the gospel is not about sexuality. It's about, save, it's about salvation, right? So we're not even talking about that, but that's how it's, that's how it's interpreted, and that, that's how it's twisted. You bring the gospel to someone who is in the, sort of the, maybe the LGBTQ, XYZ, I'm not sure all the initials, community. I'm not trying to be derogatory. I honestly can't keep up with the initials. You, you bring the gospel into that community, and it wouldn't be uncommon for the response to be a direct assault on some idea that they have of you putting constrictions on their expression of their sexuality. And our message is salvation is in no other name. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Repent, believe, come back to your creator. You've been created in the image of God. Receive the forgiveness by grace through faith. I mean, it's just the message of the gospel. The work of sanctification is a process that's going to have to take place after salvation. We're not calling people to some kind of moral perfection, right? So the Apostle Paul knew that it was Christ who had people in the city, and he just needed to reach them with the gospel. That was all he had to do. He teaches there for a period of time. He gets support from Gallio, the proconsul, because the Jews are wanting to attack him, and they bring him for this tribunal, and he basically defends him and says that this is really an internal religious squabble. I'm not going to do anything about this. So even though you have the Roman emperor expelling Jews because of all this, this discord, you still have people in the provinces and Roman leadership who are basically operating against the normal understanding of civil law. But he stayed many days longer, and this is where the journey concludes. He stays many days longer in verse 18, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So you have Priscilla and Aquila, who now become traveling companions with the Apostle Paul. 
And it says they came to Ephesus there in verse 19. So they make a stop there. He make a stop there in Ephesus. He went by himself into the synagogue with the Jews and reasoned with them there. They wanted him to stay a longer period of time in Ephesus, but he had to decline. And he left after a short stay in Ephesus on the second missionary journey. And he eventually made his way back to Caesarea and then ultimately back to his home sending church of Antioch. And immediately the text turns where he's only he's there in Antioch for some time, it says in verse 23. And then he departed and went from place to place. This is the start of the third missionary journey in verse 23. So you don't have any big you know, send-off or any kind of statement from Luke that says, okay, get ready, the, second, the third journey is about to start. It's just that he was in Antioch for some period of time. And in verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, which we've already seen a couple times now, and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That was his intent, third missionary journey. I said it at the very outset. He's going to go back through all these churches and see all these people and strengthen the churches and continue to take the gospel and continue to invest in leadership. Now, we have to understand this is taking place over multiple years of time, right? So he's going back. He probably hadn't seen some of these people for at least a year or more even. So he's going back to see them and strengthen them and encourage them. That was his plan. Again, on the second journey, he had stopped off in Ephesus. They really wanted him to stay, but he couldn't at that time. Then we are introduced to a man, Apollos, who uh, becomes a very effective um, pastor and uh, evangelist, particularly uh, in Corinth. But here we are introduced to Apollos, a native of Alexandria, verse 24, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus." though he knew only the baptism of John. So his understanding of the full implications of the gospel of salvation through Christ were still as yet limited. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, this is a great story here. This is a great example of the body of Christ at work. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And he responded, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him when he arrived. That's an indication that he responded favorably to their pulling him aside and trying to refine his understanding of the gospel. And it says, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And listen to this, verse 28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So the profile of this man, Apollos, is one who has... Uh, really astounding rhetorical skills, very effective communicator, but also very knowledgeable in the scriptures. So he brings this gifting of knowledge and ability to communicate in compelling and convincing kinds of ways. And so God uses those gifts in a significant way. In that day and time, Apollos would have been considered, you know, kind of a, a, I don't know, like a pro athlete or something. I mean, in that day and time, someone who had those kinds of rhetorical skills, those kinds of powers of persuasion, you think back to Paul's time in Athens. I mean, if you had the ability to articulate philosophical viewpoints with power and authority, he'd be like someone that would be highly recognized. He'd be like a a very well-known statesman of the day or holding some important political office. Uh, Just very uh, significant powers of rhetoric. And, and those kinds of things were highly recognized and highly valued in that day and time. And yet, this was a man of great humility. This is a man who knew that he was 
there to use the gifts that God had given him for the glory of God. And when Priscilla and Aquila approached him, he responded immediately, favorably, and was ready to go on now and take this refined understanding of the gospel to Corinth and begin to help those people there. This is a great example of how the body of Christ is to be at work among one another. We are to be able to receive correction with humility and to recognize that our gifts are not oriented toward drawing a crowd or making people think more highly of us. It's to point people to the saving knowledge of Christ and to help them grow in their faith and their understanding of how to work that salvation out until God calls them home. That's what it's all about. And so having someone like Priscilla and Aquila approach him was not a problem at all. Why would it be? A great testimony of the body of Christ. And when you think about uh, the nature of the church in our day and time, what you have on full display in place after place after place after place is what I would equate to what in many ways you might consider kind of a cult of personality, where someone who has very uh, refined rhetorical skills, very eloquent public communicator, who becomes the focal point of the church's ministry. Whether that person is desiring that or appealing for people to notice that or not, that's naturally what happens. That's naturally how people begin to view those kinds of ministries. They begin to have a sense of awe and fellowship of the great speaker. That's not what you see here. You see someone who was a masterful communicator, but the focus was on getting the gospel right, not wowing crowds. Not wowing crowds. Well, continuing on, Paul obviously makes his way through those churches in Galatia, um, spends some time there. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know how much time he spends there. We have this little interlude where we're introduced to Apollos. Then we have Paul picking up in verse, uh, chapter 19, while, Paul, while Apollos was at Corinth. So Apollos had made his way from Ephesus over to Corinth in Achaia. And the Apostle Paul then finds his way to Ephesus. And this is where he stays on his third missionary journey for some estimates say as much as three years he's in Ephesus. So really, this is the longest single place that he stays on any of his missionary journeys is there in Ephesus. Now, he's, he's there in Ephesus and he's ministering for some period of time, but you get a sense of the impact of that ministry um, a few different ways. One thing I would point out is um, in verse 11 of chapter 19, you have this account of the sons of Sceva. It's a really important um, account there where you have these, these men. Well, it says in verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. So extraordinary sign powers that were given to the apostles and to the apostle Paul in particular here. But it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And these seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
Now, this, if this doesn't place a, a huge emphasis on the necessity of truly knowing Christ by means of the gospel and not just giving lip service to some idea about who Jesus is, nothing gives a more vivid story about that than this particular account. Because the result of this kind of appropriation of Jesus speak for the purpose of selfish gain, the result of that couldn't be more stark. It says, the evil spirits answered them saying, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The gospel is not a trite little token to appropriate for some selfish end. It's not some get-out-of-hell-free card that you can just play at the right moment. That's not what the gospel is, and this is a vivid, vivid indication of that kind of truth. Well, the next event that takes place is this riot in Ephesus. This gives you an indication of how significant the ministry in Ephesus was, how big of an impact the gospel was having in Ephesus, because so many people were coming to faith in Christ in that idolatrous pagan city that they began giving up their, their idol worship and no longer purchasing the little tokens, the little small idols that they would place in their homes and create little shrines to worship the gods. No one was buying them anymore. So you have this craftsman, Demetrius, who, who develops and sells these idols, and the gospel itself, by virtue of its impact on the community, is cutting into his idol-making business. So he causes a riot. That gives you this indication of how impactful the gospel is when people really come to faith in Christ. Genuine gospel witness that takes hold in a community will absolutely affect the community at fundamental levels. This is, this is affecting the economy, so much so that this guy got all the craftsmen together. It's like the whole, the whole guild of craftsmen who made these idols, kind of banded together and said, you know, started saying, we're going to be out of business if we don't do something about these Christians. That's an amazing testimony of the power and impact of the gospel and of gospel witness and how when people actually come to faith in Christ, it is not just something that should, should affect a very isolated experience of people gathered in churches and then leaving and having no impact on their community. This has impact. It has civil impact, it has economic impact, it has a complete impact on the, on the environment, the real environment of that day and time, particularly in this particular trade of creating and selling these trinkets for idol worship. Well, moving forward, you have this riot kind of ensue and carry forward, and the Apostle Paul is really wanting to step into it and address it, I'm probably going to need to, to spend some time on the Ephesian elders next week. But just to kind of introduce it briefly, the Apostle Paul is wanting to kind of address this, this crowd, but uh, those around him are like, you can't do that, and they want to get him to safety. So they end up uh, having him leave, and they sent um, they, they have, had him go to um, Macedonia and Greece. And so it was when he's over, he's, he had left Ephesus and he had to leave abruptly. So he didn't get to say goodbye to the, to the church and to the leaders. So this is why he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church to come see him um, in Macedonia, or excuse me, in Miletus. 
And that's where we pick up in um, uh, Acts chapter 20. Before you get there, though, I'll, I'll close with this. We'll close on a light note. Um, before we'll, we'll, we'll take up the Ephesian elders next week. It's a really wonderful uh, section of Scripture that I want to spend some time on. But just so you know, um, the New Testament church, here's some principles that you, need, you can kind of hold on to. First of all, um, there, are, there could be consequences for um, gospel pastors and preachers when they preach too long. That's what you learn from Eutychus here. Um, and there are also consequences for not having stamina when the, when the message of truth is being preached and falling asleep. So what happens in this little account, I thought it was so funny, I actually used it uh, in school to kind of call out one of our students who was dozing off in class. Um, but uh, Eutychus, you have this young, young guy, and he's on a third floor, and the Apostle Paul is teaching, and it says that, that uh, um, he, they were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, so it was like totally pitch dark, and they had to light the whole place up with these lamps. Um, it says, a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taking up, taken up dead. So don't fall asleep in church because, you know, you might bump your head. Um, or make sure that there's a, an actual New Testament apostle there to raise you from the dead, because that's what happened to Eutychus. He was raised from the dead uh, by Paul when he, when he realized this. So anyway, little account there. I think that that's just uh, Luke get, keeping, the, keeping the narrative very real and, and on the ground, if you will, um, in terms of the, the events that took place. Uh, this is something that could have happened. You know, some, it's a very realistic possibility that this could happen. And yet also showing the, the, the glory of God and, and the way that God used the Apostle Paul even in this uh, situation. So next week, we'll take up uh, Paul and his um, speech to the Ephesian elders, and we'll look at the implications of that on us and on the New Testament church. Any final thoughts before we pray? Sorry, I went a little bit long. All right, let's pray.